0: your Bibles to Psalm 14. Psalm 14. The wicked fool says in his heart, There is no God. They act corruptly. They commit abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. Yahweh looks down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who has insight, anyone who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. Altogether, they have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of iniquity not know? Who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon Yahweh? There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but Yahweh is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion, when Yahweh restores his captive people, may Jacob rejoice, may Israel be glad." Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this psalm, this psalm of David and consider what he wrote, why he wrote it, for whom he wrote it, help us to understand, help us to glean from it, to understand the implications, the applications, the meaning, to uh, apply it to our lives, and we may grow in our faith. Please be with us as we hear from your word and as I speak your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Some of you may know this psalm. Um, If you don't know it exactly, you uh, are familiar with some of these words. Uh, They're quoted in the New Testament, uh, primarily in Romans chapter 3. But there's also uh, a sense in which um, there's other places where we find similar words. Uh, Psalm 53 is almost identical to Psalm 14. Um, and so much so, it's, some may, may think it's, it's almost the same that was just reprinted. Um, as you look at the whole of the Psalms, the Psalter, and as... Um, many have uh, commented on that the Psalter itself is divided up into five books, uh, five sections. And so um, this Psalm 14 lies in section 1 and 53 and uh, the section 2 or, or book 2 rather. And so uh, some may, may think it, it is kind of um, somewhat of a reprint. It kind of makes me think of... Um, Within our own hymnals, how we have uh, the same hymn in a future hymnal or future edition with only a couple words that which are are altered, um, but whatever the case, we see uh, the fact that it's repeated and and um, whether it's quoted or it's it's just verbatim repeated, um, we see in a sense because of the repetition the the importance of it, and there's there's many. Um, uh, parts of scripture like that, either quoted uh, later as uh, the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, or we see uh, quotes from uh, you know earlier in the o- Old Testament later by the prophets. We think of the prophets quoting from the law and uh, many things that, that are important are quoted again. Um, but what's interesting as we read this psalm and we see clearly that it is, in a sense, speaking to the sinfulness of mankind or the fallenness of mankind. Or we also derive from this psalm and many other uh, parts of Scripture, this doctrine of the depravity of mankind, of the fall of mankind that... that um, Adam when he fell that he uh, as God said in the day you eat of it you will die and and so he he sinned and that sin spread throughout his in a sense his whole being so that he is completely fallen in this sense that that he is uh, has been corrupted in through sin and that that sin nature spread to all of mankind that's where we get this doctrine of total depravity and we can read Psalm 14 and, and Romans 3 and Psalm 53 and, and many other uh, portions of Scripture that, that uh, point to this doctrine of the fallenness of man or the sinfulness of man. But what's interesting, and, and I didn't really see this until I started studying this psalm, is the fact that it's somewhat obvious is that this is a psalm. And it's one thing as we look at the New Testament epistles and we see certain doctrines, uh, and particularly the, the doctrine of, of man's fallenness, but then to read it in a psalm which was written for the sake of worship. This was for the people of God to sing. And even says in the superscription, for the choir director, to the lead musician, so to speak, to Uh, to sing, the people are to sing this. And so this isn't so much a a condemnation of unbelievers and and those who reject God. That is the case, but this is for the people of God to not only understand the sinfulness of mankind, but their own sinfulness, Alan Ross, in his commentary, he writes this, that the book of Psalms began with a contrast between the ungodly and the righteous, a contrast that will continually appear throughout the Psalms. The focus of this Psalm is on the ungodly, but in a way that reveals what it means to be trying to live independently of God. What the Psalm says is that the vast majority of the human race must be classed as fools, they try to deny that God exists and because they do that, their way is completely corrupt and corrupting. And so we, we see that somewhat. We see it somewhat clearly, but as I said, this is for the people of God. It, is, it was meant to be sung and so there is an aspect in which we are to somewhat uh, reflect upon it ourselves and apply it to our own lives and, and that, that we would not Uh, read it and think of everyone out there and all the people that deny God openly. But there is a sense that this is uh, uh, not only speaking to the overt uh, rebellion against God, but the um, subtle rebellion against God that's within all of our hearts. As it speaks to atheism... Um, and that explicit atheism we see in the world, it also speaks to the practical atheism or the functional atheism in, in our own hearts, in our own lives. That sometimes the, the people of God, or um, even if you're not a true believer or you're uh, religious, um, you uh, can live, even though you say you believe in God, you can live as if there isn't a God. And it's evidenced in either um, immoral living or in things such as fear, anxiety, and worry. As if God is not providing for you or will not provide for you, will not protect you, or will not guide you. And so as we look at this, I I want us all to reflect upon it ourselves, but to also see what it says about um, all of mankind. And... As we look at this psalm, we see the total depravity and sinfulness of man expressed in various ways and from different perspectives. And as we look at this, and you'll see, it is, we you see a couple different voices, namely David, the writer, but also God speaking through David. And as we look at this, I, I want you to see it um, in four uh, parts or four main points. Four declarations, really, four declarations regarding the fallenness of man. And that first declaration is the declaration of man's depravity. Man's depravity in verse 1. The wicked fool says in his heart, there is no God. They act corruptly. They commit abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. This declares uh, man's depravity and, and Primarily from David. It is David's declaration of man's depravity. One commentator points out that there are three Hebrew words for fool. We, we see the wicked fool. And, and he goes on he says, And all speak of moral orientation rather than intellectual ability. The term here denotes someone who stubbornly rejects wisdom. The word lies behind the name Nabal. You remember that... that um, Seen that narrative with David and Nabal. And Nabal is literally uh, Nabal, or uh, Naval, the Hebrew word. That's literally the Hebrew word for fool. Um, that was his name, was fool. <laughs> it's interesting, but uh, that's the term here. And it speaks not just to uh, someone who is, you know, they're. they're intellectual ability or they're, they're just not smart or they're, they're ignorant and so because they're, they, they don't have the mental capacity they're somewhat foolish in their the way they go about the world and the things they do no this is someone who's who could be very smart but they're morally foolish because the, their, their words or their ideas or the principles by which they live are inconsistent you think of um, the uh, learned and scholarly and intellectual atheists—the the ones that write books—and and the thing is, is it, you know, any really uh, wise and discerning apologist will point out the inconsistencies of their atheism. They're, they're foolish, and as David declares here, man's depravity. He points out uh, a few things. He points out. In declaring man's depravity, he points out the condition of their hearts, the condition of their hearts exposed, and then second, the condition of their being manifest, and then third, the condition of their race confirmed. But first, the condition of their hearts exposed. As Jesus said, out of the mouth, the heart speaks. And so we read here, the wicked fool says in his heart... There is no God. It's not just that he verbally expresses it, but it's in his heart. It makes me think of what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 as he is showing the sinfulness of mankind and he is beginning, as he unfolds the gospel, he begins with the bad news first, as we all should do. In Romans 1:21, he says, "For even though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened." You see, their foolish heart within their heart, within the inner part of their being, they're, they're being foolish. Paul goes on, and says, "Professing to be wise, they became fools." Why? Because they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Within their heart, they said, I will not worship God. I will not believe in God. I will not follow God. I will not honor God. I'm going to worship other things. I'm going to worship idols which I I, I make in in the image of other uh, beings or idols that I create within my own mind and imagination. And it's foolish. This is what uh, David is getting at. This is what Paul is getting at. Another passage that Paul kind of points this out is he's speaking to the Ephesians. In the middle of Ephesians in chapter 4 as he unfolds this, put-off, put-on principle and, and telling them that they are to no longer walk as the Gentiles walk or no longer walk as unbelievers. He says in Ephesians 4.17 that that you are to walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their mind, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. So it's not just that they're... Their hearts are foolish and darkened, but they're hard. They're unbelieving. They're obstinate. They're hard. And so there's a sense that this speaks not only to the explicit, overt atheist who says there is no God, but it speaks to the functional, practical atheist who may be externally religious or externally moral, but within his heart, he doesn't want to follow God. And so there's a part that this is speaking to both groups. This is speaking to the religious, functional atheist, or this is speaking to the overt, explicit uh, atheist. This is what Isaiah talks about when he says, or the Lord speaking through Isaiah, in Isaiah 29, he says, says, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their fear of me is in the command of men, learned by rote. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be hidden. Woe to those who deeply hide their counsel from Yahweh, and whose deeds are done in dark place. And they say, who sees us, or who knows us? You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, "He did not make me," or what is formed say to him who formed it, "He has no understanding." This is what Jesus, in a sense, quotes from. This is people uh, honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. This is kind of what uh, David is also getting at. That is is not just, as I said, not just the overt atheist. This is the religious, self righteous person who in their heart they are in a sense going through the motions or they living according to their own law they're doing their own thing and their really their desire is to remove all accountability and responsibility for how they live for how they desire to live James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary he writes that the reason the person is a fool not merely mistaken is that he knows there is a God and yet chooses to believe and act as if there is none. And this is where what uh, uh, Paul gets at in Romans 1, is he says that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That that, that deep down, um, almost every atheist uh, knows there is a God, and it's somewhere down there um, because their whole worldview is inconsistent. It doesn't make sense. The the concept or the basis or the foundation for morality or or any, it's not found within atheism. And, and so what they're doing is they're acting foolish within their darkened hearts to uh, suppress the truth, to say there is no God, so that they can then live however they want, and and, and they show this condition of their hearts manifested in their deeds that they act corruptly they commit abominable deeds they behave in accord with their fallen state they're corrupted and this term is as David says they act corruptly this this Hebrew term is uh, almost exactly that this term for that they themselves have been corrupted they've been ruined they've been spoiled within their own being As a human being, uh, uh, contrary to what a human being was designed to do to worship God, they have been corrupted in their sin and ruined, spoiled. And and this is all of us, all of us before, uh, before God enters into our lives and causes us to be born again. But notice that they not only sin and transgress God's law, they're not only corrupt and ruined and spoiled, but they commit abominations. They commit abominable deeds. In the Bible, there and especially we see this in the Old Testament, this term abominable deeds or abominations, it's reserved for the most heinous of sins. Think especially of those sins uh, referring to homosexuality, or maybe in our, our day and age, which uh, many would claim, well, uh, you know, the Bible doesn't speak of transgenderism, but it kind of hints at it of men trying, pretending to be women, or women t- pretending to be men. This is an abomination in God's eyes. And this is where the whole LGBTQ agenda and Movement is—it's not about um, fulfilling one's uh, uh, fleshly desires so much as it is about rebelling against God's design of saying, no, I, you, you have designed me to live and function in such a way, but I deny that, I rebel against that, I resist that. I will say whether or not I want to be a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, or even worse, it's descending even further into whether or not I'm a human being or I can be a dog or a cat or you know, this term they call furries. That, that people, and, and because of our modern technology and the advancement of um, uh, medicine, that we, we can do uh, cosmic uh, or, uh, or, or cosmetic surgeries to kind of facilitate their own uh, delusions and their fantasies. But it's foolish, and it's a, an abomination. It's a rebellion against God at the deepest level of one's being. And so we see the condition of their being manifest. But then uh, third, as, as David declares man's dra- depravity, we see the condition of their race confirmed. There is no one who does good. And, and we can't skip over that, just fly over that. But he, we, we need to see the force of that, that he says no one. Meaning not, not one, not one single person does good, and no one is good. This is what we, we hear when uh, in, in that interchange or that, that dialogue with Jesus and the rich young ruler as he comes up and he says, good teacher, what's, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Or, or, or when, when uh, Jesus tells his disciples, if you being evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father who is in heaven. His own disciples, he says, you being evil. And there's something there that Jesus, in a sense, condemns the whole human race as the whole Bible does. That outside of Christ, we stand condemned in our sin. And this is what Paul was saying in Ephesians 2, in which he says, And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest." There's no one who is good. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all depraved. We, as even David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. He, he, he not only uh, goes back to his birth, but even prior to the conception that he is, sin has spread through the whole human race. And there is no one who is good. No, not one. And yet when we come to Christ or we come to salvation or just prior to, we still want to believe that there's some good within us deep down. And even sometimes as believers, as true believers, and sometimes even as mature believers, there's a sense that we want to deep down somehow justify ourselves. But as the Bible says, no flesh will be justified in his sight. It is only God who justifies, only God who saves, only God who can declare us righteous. And the only way we can be righteous is if that we have a righteousness imputed to us or given to us through Christ. And so this psalm begins with uh, David's declaration of man's depravity, and then we see the declaration of man's disposition. And so we move from one speaker, from David, down to to God or to Yahweh. We see the declaration of man's disposition in verses 2 to 3. Yahweh looks down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who has insight, anyone who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. Altogether, they have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. No one. And so we see right here two things concerning this declaration of man's disposition. uh, Where he stands, how he stands, his his being. It begins with Yahweh's evaluation of mankind. As he evaluates, he looks down to see, he searches out, he examines. And then we see Yahweh's determination of mankind in verse 3. But first, Yahweh's evaluation of mankind, verse 2. Yahweh looks down from heaven. Upon the sons of man to see if there's anyone who has insight, anyone who seeks after God. Because in a sense, he's looking down to see if there's anyone who looks up. He's looking down to see if there's anyone who looks up. And there's this sense of looking down, we, we see this in Genesis, in a, in a couple places in Genesis. First, in, in, in the building of the Tower of Babel. As we read in Genesis 11, and the people gather, they first off, they, they refuse the creation mandate to uh, be fruitful, multiply, and spread. And they stop spreading, and they want to gather and make a name for themselves. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city, and a tower whose top will reach into the heaven, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And what's interesting is you don't quite see it in in the English, but in the Hebrew, there's more of an emphasis, more of a contrast. As the people are trying to build up and build a tower, make a monument, make a tower that rises to the heavens, and then we read then, Yahweh came down. They're trying to build this grandiose tower to make a name for themselves, and Yahweh has to stoop all the way down and look down as if a human being going down, looking into an ant hole, to see what is going down, what is going on down there. What are these little beings doing? And so he comes down to to examine. The same thing is happening in Psalm 14. We also see this this uh, concept in in the, the narrative of Sodom and Gomorrah or, or right before as, as uh, the three uh, men or, you know, it's really uh, the, the angel of the Lord, uh, s- so to speak, coming to, um, to Abraham. We read it, it says uh, in the Legacy Standard Bible, Yahweh coming, speaking to, uh, in a sense, Abraham. In Genesis 18, it says, So Yahweh said the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see whether they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. And so there's this concept of searching, of examining and it's not to, in a sense, uh, allude to the fact that, that God is without uh, all knowledge or he does not know. I, I think it, it shows, in a sense, uh, his grace and his forbearance in, in giving mankind time to repent, but also to show us that, that he uh, searches us out and he knows everything. There's, there's, not, there's nothing we can hide from him he has searched us and examined us as David would say in Psalm 139 and here he shows that he has searched out mankind to see if anyone searches for him he comes down to see if anyone is looking up he evaluates mankind and and to figure out to show us that he has completely examined us to to see whether or not there's anything good within us apart from him and so he, 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 we see his evaluation of mankind. Then we see his determination of mankind. Verse 3, they have all turned aside. Altogether they have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Everyone has rejected him. Everyone has become worthless to him. There is not one single person who does good, desires good, or is good. And it's interesting that, that we read uh, worthless or, or some translations may say corrupted the sense of worthless worthless to him in in, in a sense uh, in in uh in regards to the original design and function for which he created us, that he created us to worship him, to honor him, to glorify him, to have a relationship with him. And we, in a sense, in, our, in the fall of man, in the sinfulness of man, in the fall of Adam, we have, in a sense, gone the other way and completely turned the other way so that we are now worthless to him apart from Christ. One commentator, he writes that in verses 1 to 3, the alls and nuns of these lines make the indictments universal, universally applicable. No wonder Paul included these indictments in Romans 3, 10 to 12. And if you're familiar with uh, the Romans Road—that—that that sense of uh, evangelism. There's there's quite a few verses that you go through. There's sometimes four or five. Uh, you know, you uh, in, at the end of Romans one, or uh, and then Romans three twenty three is a, a main one, and then Romans six twenty three, and then um, you, you might go to uh, at the end of Romans eight or Romans ten nine. But we. Most of us know Romans three twenty three for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And some of us know this whole passage as Paul is uh, begins in Romans 1 and, and just uh, alluding to and elaborating on the fall of man and, and our depravity. And then he goes into Romans 2 and, and talks about uh, the Jew and, and the Jew has no claim to self-righteousness because he he is just as sinful In his heart, and then he gets to Romans 3 and verse 10, and he, in a sense, is quoting from Psalm 14, Psalm 53, uh, some other uh, portions of the Old Testament, and he says, This there is none righteous, no, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. There is none who does good, there is not even one. Their throat is an open tomb, with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are in the law, so that every mouth may be shut and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Paul elaborates on this this principle, this doctrine, this reality of the fallenness of mankind, the sinfulness of mankind, the total depravity of mankind, that we are dead in our transgressions and sins as he would write to the Ephesians and the Colossians, that there's... There's no hope for us except that God would have mercy upon us and by His grace offer us and give us this gift of salvation, this redemption which is only in Christ Jesus and we are only justified by His grace as a gift because of Christ's righteousness and because of His sacrifice on our behalf. This is where all of mankind stands. Apart from Christ, that there is no one who does good, not even one. No one is righteous. Psalm 14 lays this out. And the amazing thing is, is not just the bad news that it lays out distinctly, but the fact that this was meant to be sung by the people of God. So that they would know and that they would remember. And so we see... In this psalm, the declaration of man's depravity. And then second, the declaration of man's disposition. And then third, the declaration of man's destruction. Verses 4 to 6. Do all the workers of iniquity not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon Yahweh? There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of of the afflicted, but Yahweh is his refuge. We see this declaration of man's destruction, of man's judgment, that, that judgment is coming. Judgment is coming for all who have sinned and all who refuse to call upon God, to seek Him while He may be found, to call upon Him while He is near, to, uh, to repent, to believe, to seek forgiveness. And we see this declaration of man's destruction due to two things. First, due to their sinful disregard in verse 4. Their sinful disregard for God. Their sinful disregard for the knowledge of God. They do not know. Their sinful disregard for the people of God. They eat up my people as they eat bread. And finally, their sinful disregard for the need of God. They, They do not call upon God. They do not call upon Yahweh. I don't need God. And some of you, you may have uh, evangelized people, and they were just um, completely content. Or as one of my uh, friends who uh, taught, spoke about his testimony, he said he was a contented pagan. He's he was happy in his sin, and then he didn't he he was content. He was happy. He made enough money, had a, had all his his stuff, and there's no reason until someone shared the gospel with him. And God, by His grace, opened His eyes. But most of us, we we come to faith through a crisis or a trial or something. But every once in a while, God will um, open the eyes of someone who's completely content in their sinfulness. Yet we also know that those people are hard to reach because they're happy. They have everything they need. They're happy. I don't need God. What do I need God for? Who's God? And so we see man's destruction declared due to his sinful disregard of God. But also uh, we see the declaration of man's destruction due to their sinful disposition. Verses 5 to 6. There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but Yahweh is his refuge. And there is a sense here we get a picture into... um, them underneath God's wrath or experiencing their own destruction, experiencing the punishment which is due to them for their sins. That they are children of wrath who are under his wrath. And because they will not believe in him nor call upon him. You know, we're all familiar with uh, John 3.16. That... God so loved the world that he sent his one and only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But it's rare that we continue to quote the rest of that chapter or just the rest few rest, the, the following verses that come right after it. Because there's this large contrast. As we read John 3.16 and then 17 says this, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so his deeds may be manifested as having been done by God. And once again, what what John is writing uh, uh, there, uh, in a sense, writing what Jesus said, these are Jesus' words, that, that, uh, that man comes into this world Sinful, as David said, and, and sin did my mother conceive me. Depraved, and because of that, he is already under judgment. It's just a matter of time. And because he's under judgment, because he hates God, because he will not seek after God or call upon God or, or honor God, he hates God, and he hates the light. And he loves the darkness where he can hide and commit his evil deeds, what his sinful heart really wants. And so if anyone does come to the light, as Jesus says, his deeds may be manifested as having been done by God. It's God who draws, shows him as if he comes to the light, shows that God is drawing him to the light. So we see the, this declaration of man's destruction due to their sinful disposition because they have, in a sense, separated themselves from God and from the righteous. There is this separation for God is with the righteous generation. And, and they're only the righteous generation because God has, in a sense, uh, uh, separated them, sanctified them, called them to himself, and, and, in a sense, declared them righteous through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And there is this separation here a sinful disposition of the unbelievers of the unrighteous and not only that they afflict the righteous because they hate God and therefore they hate his people I remember one pastor and it's just one of those quotes that just sticks with you um and it's so catchy so uh just cutting almost uh uh, uh one of those sayings that, that you uh, hear that just you remember so easily. He says this, that there's two things every atheist is sure of. There is no God, and they hate him. There is no God, and they hate him. And, and it's so true, if you think of atheists, that there's there's something within them. It's not just that they don't believe in God, that but they rebel against God, and they hate him. And, and I remember seeing this in... Um, uh, place in San Diego, and we were going on vacation, Balboa Park, this great, um, kind of a county park, really nice place to go to, and there's these atheists, in this atheist foundation, um, and they set up a booth with all their literature, and and they say, uh, one of their signs says, you know, there is no God, there is no hell, enjoy yourself, enjoy your life. And right there, it's a self-refuting statement. Because it's like, well, why aren't you enjoying your life? You're sitting here trying to uh, say that there's no God. Why don't you are, like everybody else around here, is enjoying themselves, enjoying their lives. But for some reason, you got to rage against God, and you're self-refuting. You're inconsistent. Because if you really believed there was no God, you wouldn't be a part of an atheist foundation. You would live your life. I don't believe you. As uh, many apologists and evangelists, uh, they, they say they, they don't believe in atheists <laughs> because the Word of God doesn't believe in atheists. God says they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so we see uh, in here in this psalm, we see the declaration of man's depravity, the declaration of man's disposition, then the declaration of man's destruction, and then finally it, this psalm, David doesn't leave us there, and he doesn't leave us in this, this doom and gloom. And we see one final declaration, the declaration of man's deliverance, of man's deliverance. So the hope for mankind in verse 7. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When Yahweh restores his captive people, may Jacob rejoice, may Israel be glad. And so there's a sense that as David is is speaking and God's speaking through David about the sinfulness of mankind, and he's expressing uh, man's depravity and and his um, due uh, punishment from God for his sins, and, and and not only the people outside of Israel, but the people within Israel that are honoring God with their lips, but their heart is far from him, that that David cries out for salvation. He declares man's deliverance. And man's deliverance according to two things. According to God's redemptive plans and then according to God's redemptive purposes. Notice how he says at the beginning of verse 7, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. And as he speaks this, this declaration, it seems more of a question or a desire. He's not speaking to the possibility or the potentiality of the salvation of Israel coming out of Zion, but as if it's opposed to other places it could come from. But he, 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 he speaks to the timing. That, that he knows that the salvation of Israel is going to come out of Zion. But, but he's, he's calling for the point at which it does come out of Zion. That it would come. That it would come soon and that it would come now. Also alluding to how it would come. Through the Messiah. Through Jesus. As David often as a type of Christ speaks of Christ. That the salvation of Israel would come out of Jerusalem, out of Zion, where God has, in a sense, uh, established his king, as Psalm 2 says. And that it would come at God's appointed time according to his predetermined plan. And then we read of this uh, this redemptive plan. He goes on that... that this salvation would come out of Zion when Yahweh restores his captive people. His captive people. And, and as many of the Israelites would read the Old Testament and think of the Messiah, they thought of this sense of his captive people and, and their, their captivity or their oppression from uh, the, the nations or from other oppressors was really speaking of their oppression from sin, their captivity to sin. As Isaiah says, uh, in a sense, uh, uh, God speaking through Isaiah. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to captives and freedom to prisoners. This is, in a sense, a Jesus speaking here. Which he would then again fulfill in Luke 4 as he comes into Nazareth. And he comes into the synagogue in Nazareth. And he's given this scroll. And the scroll is given to him. The the scroll of the prophet of Isaiah is handed to him. And he opens the scroll and finds this place where it's written, uh, Isaiah 61 which he didn't have numbers, but he knew where it was, and he says, he speaks, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he closed the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, As he sat down, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. As David calls out for this salvation of Israel to come out of Zion, when Yahweh restores his captive people, he is pointing towards Jesus. He's pointing towards the Messiah, pointing towards him who would bring salvation and restore his captive people to save them from their sins, from their captivity, from their slavery to sin according to God's redemptive plans and according to God's redemptive purposes so that Jacob would rejoice and Israel would be glad. That's his purposes. The same purpose that he does everything he does is for his glory. That his people would rejoice and be glad in him. To the praise of his glory. As we've been going through uh, Ephesians 1 in the morning, we keep hearing this phrase, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. All for his glory. That's why we are saved. That's why we are delivered. is why God does all that he does for his glory. And that we would see that. And we would see that here in with the backdrop of our own sinfulness. Many preachers have used this analogy in preaching the gospel. This analogy of the jeweler with the diamond. And that the jeweler in showing the, the beauty of the diamond, and as small as it may be, and showing the cut and the sparkle and everything that goes with the, the, the gemstone, that they first lay down the black velvet or the black background. So that then the the diamond shines that much brighter. And there is a sense that this psalm, and and as we proclaim the gospel, and many parts of the Bible which um, proclaims the gospel and 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 uh, unfolds it, we start with the bad news first, and we see the backdrop of the sinfulness and the total depravity of man, so that we can we can more clearly see the grace of God and His great deliverance and that we would uh, respond as he calls us to to the praise of his glory that we would rejoice and that we would be glad in him heavenly father we so often look around our world and we can easily look within our own hearts and in our own lives and it's so easy to see the dirt especially if uh, if our eyes and our minds and our hearts have been illumined as believers if we know we easily see the faults and and we can easily see it in the world. But Lord, help us to look to your grace and your mercy in light of the darkness and the corruption of this world, in light of the sinfulness of the world, in light of our own sin. As uh, Robert Murray McShane said, for every Look at your sin, Every look at your failures, take ten looks at the cross of Christ. And we thank you for that cross, we thank you for that redemption, and for anyone in here who has not experienced that redemption, that deliverance, we pray that you would do a mighty work of salvation in and through them, and help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, and to proclaim this gospel throughout the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. time to know